Welcome to the Top in Tech podcast. This is Global Council's monthly digest of the key developments in tech policy globally. The tech sector is experiencing a regulatory and political backlash, the so-called tech lash. And this is happening across the world, but is particularly intense in Europe. So each episode, the Global Council team will dive into the dynamics behind the tech lash. What are the politics that are driving criticism of the sector? What are the policy outcomes that politicians and regulators are looking to secure? And what are the differences in regulatory approaches in the UK, the European Union, the US and in other parts of the world? And ultimately, how would this all affect everyone's day-to-day experience of using apps, smartphones and much else besides? Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Top in Tech. This month, we're going to cover two main issues. First of all, the UK government has announced a transport bill. This new piece of legislation is set to transform the mobility tech sector in the UK. And by this, we mean micromobility services, whether that is e-scooters, private hire and ride hailing, as well as looking to transform the legal framework for autonomous vehicles. I'm delighted to have Megan Stagman, the Associate Director and GC's tech team, to talk us through it. The second issue we're going to do is going to focus on what the European Commission has been up to. They've very recently published a new proposal on child sexual abuse material online. This has prompted a storm over privacy and encryption and is set to be controversial over the next couple of years. Again, I'm delighted to be joined by Jack Keevil, Senior Associate in GC's tech team based in Brussels, and he'll give us our perspective on where that's headed in the EU legislative programme. Megan, perhaps that's the point that I can just ask you the opening question. Um, we've got this transport bill. We don't have much detail uh, about what it will actually include. So for the listener's benefit, can you just give us a little bit of a sense of where you think it's going and also what the timing is around the bill itself? First, I guess I would say it's fairly normal for us not to have a lot of detail at this point. So it just kind of covers the broad topics and then we'll have to wait to see the bill itself to understand what the provisions on those topics might look like. As you say, there's quite a big section of it that's committed to uh, railway sector issues. So, for example, establishing a new body called the Great British Railways Authority, which would essentially subsume and replace the current network rail organisation. So there's also some new provisions on EV charging infrastructure. Essentially, the government would use this legislation to implement its EV charging infrastructure that was published in March, make sure that local authorities actually carry that out. There's also, as you mentioned, some stuff around Uh, autonomous mobility, automated vehicles first and foremost, but also possibly other remotely operated vehicles or even ships, for example. And then on micromobility, there's an interesting commitment to a new category for the so-called low-speed zero-emission vehicles. And the government has said that first and foremost, they want that to be around e-scooters, given that that's a very high-profile issue at the moment. But in the future, that might extend to other types of vehicle as well. So, for example, uh, there's a lot of debate around pedicabs as well, or rickshaws that are kind of driving around London streets, and especially around Oxford Street, if you live here. On your question about timing, so as you point out, the parliamentary session normally lasts a year. So it's likely that the bill is going to be introduced in some form during that period. The government has also committed to legislation on e-scooters 
during this session. So that's further validation of that. However, it might be a while before these provisions are actually enacted or implemented. So for example, the timing for the Great British Railways Authority that I mentioned is likely to be at some point before 2024, so it might be a bit longer. And the full regulatory framework for automated vehicles um, might not be until 2025. So in some we're going to see debates happening fairly quickly, but we might not actually see legislation implemented for some time yet. Thanks, Megan. So it's, it's a little bit of a hodgepodge of, of, of different issues. In some sense, it feels like one of those pieces of legislation where the transport department uh, has a number of different issues that it wants to update in legislation and it sort of chucked them all in at once. So that sort of seems to account perhaps for the random uh, nature of the topics that are covered. But look, let's jump into a couple of those bits and pieces. Autonomous vehicles. So we had the Law Commission report earlier this year, and that called for a new system of legal accountability between driver assist features and genuine self-driving vehicles. So you covered this earlier in the year. We actually did an event on it with the Law Commission. So you know those provisions pretty well. Do you think the bill is basically just a vehicle for implementing what the Law Commission recommended? Both yes and no to that question. So there are some elements which do seem to have been carried across to this legislation. For example, we're going to see new legal entities created that would essentially protect the occupants of those automated vehicles from any responsibility. So if you've been told that you're in a validly working automated vehicle, you shouldn't then be responsible if um, something happens during that journey. And you might even be able to kind of look at the screen within the car, which is an announcement that was trailed last month prior to the Queen's speech. We're also going to see new safety standards, which is something that the Law Commission was asking for. Um, and although we don't know yet know exactly what those will look like, it's quite possible that that will include the Law Commission's recommendation for a two-stage approval and authorization process. They also suggested um, an in-use safety assurance scheme. So essentially, vehicles would have regulatory oversight throughout their life cycle to ensure that they remain safe throughout the duration of their use. So in some ways, yes. Um, however, there are some bits of the report which seem to be missing, at least for now. They might be added later. For example, the Law Commission was quite clear about wanting to see it made an offence to misadvertise a vehicle that actually just had driver assist functions and to say that it was an automated vehicle and said that that distinction needed to be made really clear because otherwise people are obviously going to depend on it in a way that isn't safe. The bill also seems to be containing some extra stuff that wasn't in the Law Commission report. Um, and as you can imagine, it's perhaps more political and less technical. There was a line in there around ensuring that automated vehicles serve all parts of society when they're used as part of the transport networks. Although that's fairly ambiguous, I think we can probably imagine that will be stuff around accessibility of these vehicles and probably also some kind of nod to levelling up and the distribution and prevalence of these vehicles across the UK. Thanks, Megan. That, that, that seems to cover autonomous vehicles well and we'll await to see a little bit more detail on those areas that are a bit ambiguous particularly around accessibility there'll be a lot of interested listeners about where that particular debate ends up but let's turn now to i mean there's a lot in there so let's turn to micro mobility and i'd like to focus a little bit on e-scooters specifically so we know there's been these e-scooter rental schemes operating in different parts of the uk for the last year and a half or so. They've been extended those rental schemes until the end of November. But we're in this curious situation where on the private ownership side, so where people own the e-scooter themselves, the use of that on British roads and British pavements is not actually legal. 
And yet, I think anyone who lives in London or probably other cities as well, you see them everywhere. And de facto, people are using these vehicles uh, as if they are legal. What's going to happen here? Is the bill going to legalise e-scooters across the board? Or do you think there's going to be some distinction whereby, for instance, rental usage, as we've already seen, and the trials could be legalised, but private usage not? Or what's your view? Crucially, some parliamentarians would like to see them banned entirely. We've had Baroness Neville Rolfe in the House of Lords repeatedly saying that she thinks they're too dangerous, even if they're legalised and the safety standards are set. And to be fair, we have seen a lot of accidents. Um, There have been a lot of police reports about their use, precisely because, as you say, at the moment, they're not properly regulated, um, and yet they're millions of them on the street. I think the government will legalise them, but there will be quite strict safety standards. Um, And this is where that category that I mentioned comes in, this low speed zero emission vehicle category. So we're expecting certain standards to be associated with that category. I think power and weight limit is very likely to be involved. Speed, the maximum speed is quite likely to be there as well. And if we look at the current rental schemes as some kind of like precedent or example to look at, the current limit there is 15.5 miles per hour. So it's quite likely that something similar would be implemented for privately held e-scooters as well. Lighting is another area where we might see standards. Helmets is something that politicians have kind of mixed views on. So some think that they should be made mandatory. Others think it's just not practical or even hygienic to say that kind of helmets have to be used. Insurance is one other issue where kind of the jury's still out. And then finally, a minimum age. So, I mean, it's quite interesting to look at other examples um, on this because the UK is actually one of the few European countries that has a minimum age for e-bikes, whereas a lot of other European states don't. So whether we have a minimum age for e-scooters as well is still yet to be decided. And I think the answer to quite a lot of these questions will be informed by the monitoring program that has come from that rental trial that you spoke about. The government has been collecting data from these rental trials. It's going to be publishing the report um, and the conclusions of that research in late spring. So I think at the end of May, we're probably coming up quite close to late spring, and then that will inform their future approach. I think beyond the actual technical safety standards, some politicians are also demanding more. So for example, the financing from e-scooter companies so that police actually have the extra bandwidth and the resource to enforce bans on driving on pavements, for example, which of course is something that you can probably expect e-scooter companies themselves to lobby against. And then concurrent to that sort of legislative development, you talked about the the rental schemes and the fact that they were coming to an end in November, which they are, but local authorities are also expected to be setting up around that time more permanent programs of their own. So if you don't have an e-scooter of your own, you will still be able to go out and rent um, an e-scooter in the same way that at the moment you can go out and rent an, uh, a Boris bike in London, for example. So the RFPs for that and the tender is probably going to go live for that later this year. Essentially, a lot of action. The bill will be one thing to watch, but local authorities' action will be also interesting as well. Thanks, Megan. I think if you look to the critics of e-scooters, often they will argue that the police are not doing enough to enforce uh, the current rules uh, around e-scooters. And I think probably in, in retort, police would argue that there are so many of those vehicles out on the roads now that it is impractical for them to enforce this. So what actually a bill that sets the weight limits, age limits, helmets and other requirements might be able to do is actually improve 
enforcement as well, because it will give the police some clear criteria on which uh, to base their decisions. So Jack, can I just bring you in here? It'll be very interesting because we, we focus very much on the UK so far. But how does this situation match up with what's happening in other countries, say, for instance, Germany and France? Well, I think the common point is, of course, that these scooters end up, if Brussels is anything to go by, sort of clogging the pavement, stopping old ladies and mothers with prams and stuff from, from getting around the city, which is its own sort of political dynamic. But more seriously, on the sort of actual things themselves, other EU countries have already taken measures. France and Germany, they both require insurance, for example, and they both have speed limits on the, the scooters themselves, but the, obviously the, the speed limits are different. And this is where you kind of wonder, well, is this become, going to become something of a single market issue? Because, I mean, typically the European Union doesn't have a lot of power on, on road traffic rules, but on the products themselves, they do have a lot to say. And, and in, in general, different standards and requirements for the same product in different countries is not usually looked upon favorably by the kind of single market Ayatollahs in Brussels. On the e-scooters, the technical standardization work is already underway, but it's not strictly speaking an EU thing. But where we can see a useful point of comparison is in e-bikes, which are dealt with under type approval legislation, which is how, you know, whether checking this thing is kind of safe to put on the market and how is the information that the man manufacturer supplies, is that correct? And, and and this kind of thing. But of course they are they're exempt from these requirements if they if the electrical assistance stops out at 25 kilometers an hour. There was also a discuss, discussion as to whether they should have been covered by the motor vehicle insurance directive when it was last revised. So it'll be interesting to see whether the Commission proposes to amend this kind of other legislation that deals with other aspects of their use and e-scooters as products uh, as part of its mobility framework. But even with the e-bikes, member states still retain quite a lot of leeway to set things like the speed limits, helmet requirements, insurance, and, and so on. Those things won't be won't be changed by any EU action. Okay, thanks, Jack. So this is one of those areas where perhaps uh, Brexit isn't necessarily changing very much between what might have happened uh, were the UK a member of the European European Union or not. Member states like Germany and France have a lot of flexibility. So anyway, let's move on. Last thing, Megan, lots of different issues uh, in the bill, but I want to pick up on ride hailing, a controversial sector over the past decade across Europe following the market entry of Uber. Things have changed a lot in, in that period, a lot of focus on employment rights, a lot of focus on safety, a lot of focus on licensing issues. What's the bill going to do here? Are there any major changes which could affect how our listeners use their Uber, their Ola, their Bolt or other services? It's quite unlikely to impact them, the, the actual passengers, but I think there will probably be some changes for the companies or the operators themselves. Um, and we see this because there's a, a reference within the bill to establishing more of a level playing field and uh, ensuring that the same standards are met by drivers across England to gain or retain a taxi or PHV license. It's also promises to enhance licensing authorities, compliance and enforcement powers. So what exactly that looks like in practice um, isn't clear, but it looks like there's going to be some kind of harmonization and consistency effort that will be put in legislation. Perhaps as some indication of what those extra enforcement powers might look like, um, there was a private member's bill that got royal assent which is quite unusual for a private member's bill and therefore shows the kind of political backing that it had a couple of months ago, which is essentially trying to deal with the issue of problem drivers. So the idea that someone who would have had their license revoked for misbehaving, essentially, could then just go to the next local authority and get a license with them instead and just kind of keep flitting around the country. And obviously that would create kind of danger and threats for passengers themselves. It was also trying to deal with the issue of local authorities uh, making a lot of money out of licensing fees in a way that potentially wasn't fair. Wolverhampton, for example, has been kind of pointed out as quite a small 
um, authority that you wouldn't think would hand out very many PHV licenses. And yet, actually, they handed out 15,000 in 2019, which amounted to a whopping £3.7 million. So essentially, there were concerns that some councils might be using this as a bit of a revenue stream rather than taking safety seriously. So as a result of that, um, the private members bill has now mandated the use of a central database and any drivers who have their license revoked or suspended will have to be logged in there. And therefore, if they try to go to another jurisdiction, that will be immediately flagged. Similarly, it will allow local authorities to communicate with the licensing authority about wrongdoing. So if a driver is licensed in one county and then goes to another and potentially commits some crime in some way, that will then go back to the licensing authority. So essentially, the whole system is going to be a bit better coordinated and harmonized. And what would be built on top of that in this transport bill is still not yet clear. But I think that's the kind of sentiment that's driving a lot of this. Well, thanks, Megan. So if we were to summarize at least the topics that we've talked about from the transport bill, for those people who are following micromobility and mobility tech closely, I think the central message on autonomous vehicles is the bill will give us a firmer legal footing, which will underpin the continued development of autonomous vehicles and the trials in the UK. Micromobility on the e-scooter side, it looks like some form of legalization is coming, but legalization with conditions attached around. And that's where the real debate is going to be about exactly what those conditions are. And then on private hire vehicles, it's probably more of an iterate, iterative change. It's not big bang overhaul of the sector, but measures that are looking to make the sector safer for passengers, which is likely to increase uh, compliance obligations in some way, shape or form. Uh, for operators uh, in the sector and will shape how they interact with local authorities. So thanks very much for that. Um, and thank you, Jack, for, for covering off the, the European dimension. But Jack, I want to bring you in more fully now into the conversation about what the European Commission is doing. You could be forgiven in some sense for thinking the European Commission might have exhausted all its legislative energy. It's already proposed the Digital Services Act and pretty much got that agreed. The Digital Markets Act pretty much got that agreed. The AI Act is well advanced. Uh, we've got the Data Act out there. We've got the Platform Workers Directive. I mean, there's a lot going on, uh, to put it mildly. So what we've seen is the, uh, on top of all of this, is the publishing of a legislative proposal uh, for a new regulation that's aimed at tackling child sexual abuse material uh, online. Um, this is a big proposal, a controversial proposal, and one that's really ruffled some feathers uh, across industry over the past few weeks. So can you just, for uh, the sake of listeners, just talk us through the headline measures and also give us a little bit of context, like what, what is Commission trying to do here? Well, I think it's safe to say that the European Commission can always find new ways to come up with extra rules to add to the European legal order. But specifically in this area, until now, the the basis for detecting and removing child sexual abuse material, or CSAM, as we'll call it, has been voluntary. There has been a basis there in EU law for companies to detect and remove, but there's no obligation to do so. Well, the European Commission has decided this is insufficient, and a look at the stats they produce to explain this assessment is you very quickly um, see why they think that there's sort of millions and millions of, of incidents around the world, but also especially in Europe and even especially in, in certain countries in particular. This problem was also exacerbated and accelerated by the COVID-19 pandemic and the lockdowns abroad. Under the proposal, uh, messaging services 
so things like um, obviously the things that you would commonly associate with this, like uh, WhatsApp, iMessage, Facebook Messenger, but also things like chat functions in video games or other other online platforms and services. Um, so messaging services, as well as hosting services, which is things like cloud storage, place where you keep files, they would all have to assess assess the risk that their service would be used for disseminating CSAM and take measures to mitigate any risks they find. They could also be served court orders to detect and remove CSAM contents as well as grooming. So when when potential criminals solicit children online, um, and this would be at the request of, of law enforcement authorities. Thanks, Jack. So I think some listening at the moment will probably be somewhat staggered that the framework that we have for tackling uh, CSAM, as we call it, uh, content online, is actually a voluntary one. And no doubt um, that's going to be a core argument that will be deployed by the Commission, as well as NGOs and others who are active in the child uh, safety space. But before we jump into that particular point of controversy, one thing that has stumped me, and I suspect will stump others, is that why are we why do we need this regulation in the first place? Wasn't this already supposed to have been sorted out in the Digital Services Act? Uh, why wasn't this issue and this anomaly about uh, voluntary measures tackled then rather than a separate piece of legislation? So the DSA applies some very basic, broad obligations across a very broad selection of services. The requirements on hosting services, for example, are very minimal in the DSA. Messaging services are not treated specifically either. The DSA was already a bit of a Christmas tree in that you kind of have not, you know, these kind of layered obligations, which increase with the sort of the size and importance of the service, kind of touching on a bit of all the various ills that were attributed to social media platforms and other platforms uh, over the past few years. But then when you look at the CSAM proposal, it's, it comes to like something like 89, art, 89, 90 articles, something like this, it establishes a new EU center for, for tackling sexual abuse material. And you see that They've had to have a much more comprehensive approach to the problem they've identified, which in the DSA would just not have been feasible. To bring that together, then, so the DSA is a sort of the minimum base framework that governs how some of these platforms operate in removing illegal content. But that illegal content goes well beyond child sexual abuse material, it covers all forms of illegal content. So it provides that overarching framework that companies have to adhere to. But the seriousness of this particular type of content requires there to be almost a DSA plus type approach that reinforces the measures that are taken on this particular area. So I think that's clear. It's clear in my mind, at least. Let's go into the politics of the encryption issue. So give us give us the broad sweeps here on you know, which countries in, in the council uh, which groups of MEPs in the European Parliament are falling into the respective camps to characterise them? Broad sweeps, the sort of privacy camp, the pro-encryption, pro-privacy camp, and then the child protection, safety, security camp. Who's in who and what is the particular balance of power there? Yeah, so if you look at these sort of two camps, on the one hand, you have the sort of child protection advocates and the various sort of charities, NGOs across across Europe, plus a few others, um, as well as the law enforcement authorities who have also asked for this kind of proposal via their justice ministers. To slightly oversimplify, these camps all think there should be obligations on service providers to tackle CSAM and that technologies like encrypted messaging hinder law enforcement investigations until now, and therefore something must be done. On the other hand, you have the privacy, fundamental rights and security advocates. They contend, they contend that Mandating the scanning of private messages is essentially a form of mass surveillance that violates, well, the right to privacy 
has implications for freedom of speech in the way that kind of it could lead to sort of overblocking of content. Also, the kind of self-censorship that could take place when you think you're being watched. And so you think, well, perhaps I'd better not write something I was going to do. Uh, they think it technologically, it's impossible to implement this in a way that does not violate users' privacy. The technology could also be applied to content that has nothing to do with CSAM very easily, creating kind of security vulnerability. And I think there's also arguably a kind of You'll, you'll get some people who will make a kind of EU values argument in the way that it, that is made to the rest of the world, as in they kind of point to, you know, any dictator in sort of an authoritarian regime could point to the European Union as a place where scanning citizens' private communications is allowed, and therefore they can do the same, regardless of what, are the, what their justification might be or for what purpose. And the technology, as we've said before, could be kind of also redirected into other areas. European Commission saw a lot of these things coming, of course, because in, through, the, through the consultation process, there was these arguments were made before. And they've tried to address some of these concerns and will argue that things like the limited duration, specifically about the detection of removal orders, which is the, kind of the scanning part, that argue that the limited duration, the fact that it has to be based on a court order, that it has to be reasoned, and so on and so forth, all these would mitigate the risks posed to fundamental rights. This will not in any way reassure the privacy security camp at all, but it might buy off that kind of middle ground of politician who thinks both sides of the issue says, well, yes, this is a huge problem. Yes, there's privacy issues, but if we kind of find a balanced approach, as they say, uh, then we can pass it. That could be one, one way it develops. In terms of the member states, by far and away, the most vocal has been Germany. All sorts of stakeholders in German society have spoken out against it from the interior minister right down to even the child protection organization saying, well, actually, this message scanning goes too far. I mean, they have a very strong privacy tradition, in part due to the kind of Stasi history of monitoring their, their citizens' uh, communications and every aspect of their lives. And But when you compare to other member states, they haven't been so vocal. So it's really German, Germany is by far and away the most vocal opponent of this particular part of the proposal. And classically, in council, German opposition alone is, is often enough to kind of scupper something. Even if they can't positively get something done just because they want it, they can often stop something because they don't. That will be the kind of dynamic expected in council. In the parliament, it's also worth considering because in the Libe, the Civil, Civil Liberties Committee will be the one that leads on this. Typically, that's an area where the privacy hawks won't quite say reign supreme, but are very, are very, very strong uh, influence through things like GDPR, e-privacy. But it's going to be tempered because the normal majority of socialists, greens and liberals will be undermined a little bit by the fact that the liberals have appointed in a very sort of children's rights active MEP as their rapporteur. So the, the majority is fallen in a slightly different way to what you might normally expect. Okay, thanks, Jack. So it does sound like it's going to be a complicated process. If you have the largest, most influential member state uh, with a big problem with the piece of legislation, then uh, if you're sitting in the Berlimont wondering about how this is going to get through, that would certainly worry me. And as you say, I mean, maybe the dynamics in the Libe Committee and the European Parliament are slightly different to some previous rounds of this debate, but clearly there's going to be a lot of opposition in those committees and in the parliamentary debates towards it. If there is one issue where you could see a case being made that would tip some of these majorities more towards a sort of security safety argument, then the protection of children online is perhaps the one where you may be able to do it. And presumably, this is why the commission has taken this calculation, that it is worth this political firestorm in order to try and push it forward. You know, we've focused on Brussels, um, but Brussels is not the only place that has been debating these issues around encryption. Megan, you follow very closely what's happening in Whitehall here. I think it was last year, uh, Home Secretary Priti Patel 
very publicly warned Facebook, or as they are now Meta, that their encryption approach must not hamper child protection. So what does that mean? Is the UK planning to act in a similar way to the European Commission here? So I think there's definitely an element of looking at how companies and their technology might be able to to fix this problem. So while she issued a warning to Meta, she's been quite supportive of Apple, for example, because they've been looking at this filtering technology in their own efforts to kind of balance protection and privacy. However, worth noting that they actually had to make a number of compromises on their original plans before implementing that. And quite a lot of it hit a lot of the same controversies that Jack's just been outlining, in particular, a potential alert to law enforcement when kind of like scanning photos during iCloud uploads. A lot of people were very concerned about that and they had to kind of make some rollbacks. However, that's obviously just one company. And so I think the UK government has been hoping that maybe there will be some kind of like technological development for other companies as well that in some way resolves this problem. As a result of that, at the end of last year, they set up the so-called safety Tech Challenge Fund are now pumping, I think, £85,000 for five different organisations. So quite a, a sum of money to help them develop technologies that can scan for CSAM on messaging platforms that have end-to-end encryption. So I think there is a hope that maybe there will be some kind of technological solution to this. However, similar legislative efforts are also being made to those in the, the EU, um, most notably through the Online Safety Bill, which we've discussed on these podcasts um, before. Um, Um, And particularly giving the regulator of that regime, Ofcom, the ability to mandate proactive technology, as it's so-called, to scan, restrict and remove harmful content. Again, we're still at quite an early stage of that bill. So what that looks like in terms of practical implementation is not yet clear. There's a lot of people um, who are calling for some kind of clarification on that. Um, Similarly, companies, as the draft draft bill is currently worded, would have to proactively prevent so-called priority illegal content from getting onto their platforms. And that's likely, in fact, as it's drafted, it will be uh, CSAM, but also terrorist content. So if you're having to stop it from getting on there in the first place, that implies some kind of filtering or scanning or detection mechanism of the type that we've just been talking about. I guess in some, there's this bill that we'll see in the UK and we'll have to see what trajectory that takes. But at the moment, it looks like there might be similar nods to the the policy direction that Jack outlined. But there's also perhaps more of an effort to see what could be feasible technologically. It's interesting your reference to Apple there and what happened with their piloting of the the filtering technology, uh, which caused such a fuss. I mean, clearly, if politicians would love it, if if the companies themselves could find a solution here that saved them uh, the tortuous political debates that Jack just described earlier. I think on the UK side of things, so Megan, it does sound like that the UK is moving in the same direction. The crucial difference being that whereas the EU is putting this in primary legislation in detail, on the UK side of things, there's a bit of ambiguity and a bit of flexibility for the regulator to demand these things under certain circumstances, but it's not prescribed in that particular way. So we still don't quite know if it will take exactly the same form, but clearly the principle is pretty similar. Let's jump back, Jack, just to finish off on this section. I get a sense of deja vu here, remembering the tortuous negotiations around the e-privacy regulation, uh, which has been in the deep freeze for years now. It never came into law because of a schism between the EU institutions, between some of these camps, between those who valued privacy in the parliament and wanted a robust e-privacy regulation, and those who, in the council in particular, who are prioritising security via the e-evidence proposals. And there was a sort of link made between those two, and they've sort of went to 
sleep in the background while the rest of the legislative agenda move forward. I just wonder when I think about this particular proposal, particularly what you said about Germany having deep reservations, is just, are we going to see this same situation again? I mean, is it really likely that this proposal on CSAM could be agreed before the European elections in 2024? I don't think we're going to see a repeat of the e-privacy uh, kind of debacle that, we, that we've that we seen so far. We shouldn't forget that this one, firstly, is linked to a much more politically potent issue in the shape of the child protection demands, which you know has led some people to kind of accuse the commission of weaponizing the issue to push through something else that everyone doesn't want. But ultimately, we're, the controversy is only really focused on one part of the proposal. There's only a few articles. Um, and a lot of the proposal, the kind of the risk assessment, mitigation obligations, the EU Center for Tackling Sexual Abuse Material, all this will seem very innocuous to most lawmakers. And you could well imagine them passing these parts of it with only minor kind of modifications and clarifications and perhaps a few safeguards and, and, and this kind of thing. But the message scanning, the, the chat controller, as the Germans have, have branded it, that will meet strong opposition. But as I say, the EU legislators could well adopt the rest of the proposal without this, or maybe a kind of a more restricted or diluted version. And they could do that and still be able to claim good progress in the fight against CESAM. So I, I would assume some form of the regulation will go through. There's always the classic compromise of putting something that's too controversial to be agreed in the negotiating room at the time into a, a review clause where the commission has to come back in, say, three, four, five years' time and review the issue and potentially bring forward new proposals. So who knows? Maybe we'll see that classic reheated yet again. Well, look, I'd just like to say thank you to your to you both, to, to Megan Stagman and to, to Jack Keevil, uh, and for covering such wide ground, um, both on mobility tech, but also on the regulation of messaging and social media platforms online, particularly with relating to child sexual abuse material. We will follow these issues closely as well as all the other issues that we uh, pop up every now and again, whether that's the Online Safety Bill, Digital Markets Act, and so on and so forth. But as always, to listeners, if you, your business, or your investment are exposed to either of the trends or developments that we've been talking about today, please don't hesitate to get in touch. You can find our contact details for me, but also for Megan and for Jack, and for the rest of the GC team on our website, which you can find at www.global-council.com, or you can find it in the link for the podcast notes. So thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you again next time. Bye-bye.